0: So I pray that we can, can now just enjoy worship. Um, Lori, I don't know about you. I'm, I'm sure it's probably the case, but sometimes gathering uh, as as the preacher or um, minister of music, you, you kind of you kind of feel like you've got to get everything right in a row and it's got to flow and and you come almost like a production and and it's important to do things decently and in order. We want to do that, um, but we also want to um, not let the logistics overcome the fact that we're gathered to worship God. And, you know, so sometimes we, I, I laugh at my mom, you know, we'll, we'll She'll ask, how was church today? Or I'll ask her, how was church today? And I've, I'm, I may have said this before, but she will reply, oh, we had a good crowd. You know, you know or we didn't have a good crowd, as if that's how we measure uh, our worship. And I don't know if this thing's going to work or not. I'm, I'm bad with logistics, y'all. I'm telling you, I'm just not good with this stuff. Okay. So anyway, I'm just giving that as just as a, as a, as a prelude Let's just not be so focused on everything's got to fall right in place as we're falling at the feet of Jesus this morning. Mark was a short, dumpy kind of guy. He was a friend that I met uh, years ago when we served together in Hawaii. And it was a shock to most of us when Mark came into work one morning and said, Guess what? I'm going to run the Honolulu Marathon. And I, you know, we thought, wow, the only thing I've ever seen him run to is the vending machines. <clears throat> well, he certainly prepared for the race. He modified his diet and his, uh, his, his eating habits. He went out and bought the right wardrobe. He bought some running sh- really high-dollar running shoes and all that kind of stuff. And the marathon was all he talked about. To say that he was over the top, super stoked to run the marathon would be an understatement. Then came race day. So Mark pinned on his bib, his number, and he set out on a 26.2 mile run. That is a marathon. 26.2 miles. He left. Uh, he he. The gun sounded at 7 a.m. that morning, and Mark did the first 10 miles. Uh, really, really well. In fact, it was almost easy for him. He maintained a ten-minute pace. He was running on adrenaline. He enjoyed the sights. I don't know if you've ever been to Hawaii, but he enjoyed the sights of of Waikiki. And, and as they ran around Diamond Head out to Hanama Bay, he said it was like it was like a worship experience almost. But somewhere along mile fourteen the novelty wore off, and the race became a struggle. Somehow, he made it another 10 miles to mile 24, and it's two miles from the finish line when Mark hit the wall. Any of you who've ever run long distance would know what it means to hit the wall in his mind, Mark wanted to finish, but his body screamed no. What a shame to start and run a race and not finish. In case you're unaware, the visible church is in trouble. By visible church, what I mean is the, the gathering or the numbers of people who claim to be believers all over the world. The people that claim to follow Jesus and whose names would appear on a church roll. As opposed to the invisible church, the invisible church are those people that, that we, we might not know about, but, but God knows it, the invisible church represents the true church. Genuine believers. God knows the invisible church. Right now before our eyes we see a cultural phenomenon of thousands of nominal believers so-called deconstructing their faith. Have you heard of these people? These so-called ex are swapping the historic Christian faith for pseudo-religion. Fueled by LGBTQ, cultural Marxism, and other such woke ideologies. But that aside, one statistic that has bugged me personally ever since I've known anything about church is attendance percentage. Just in the Southern Baptist Convention, on any given Sunday, about 72 percent, what do you think I'm getting ready to say? About 72 percent of people on the church rolls do not attend church. A true, there there are a lot of people that are shut in, right? And, and and statistics can do all kinds of stuff. But for the main part, that there's a huge chunk of people. And we're just talking about Southern Baptists right now. There's a huge chunk of people who claim to be followers of Christ. They have joined the local church, but they do not attend worship. It's a broad-brush brush statement, I know. But I think it's valid, at least in the SBC, To say this, most people who claim to be followers of Jesus are not active in the local church. That is troubling. Why? Why don't they attend? Well, I think Jesus' parable that I read earlier speaks to that. In Mark chapter 4, verses 14 through 20, Jesus uh, explains this parable that we read earlier. I'm just going to read what Jesus says. He's explaining this parable. He says, The sower sows the word. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and he takes away the word that is sown in them. And he goes on, he says, These are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. They have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation, persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are the, those who hear the word, but for the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit 30-fold, 60-fold, and a hundredfold. So I think it's fair to conclude that those who receive the word and don't endure because of persecution or tribulation or the cares of the world or the love for riches, they don't endure because of all these things. For the most part, these are the people who are on church rolls who have given up and quit the race? I think it's even permissible to equate those on the rocky ground, those on the thorny, uh, in, in the thorny soil, as those who started the race and they quit. But listen, Jesus teaches us this. He teaches us through the parable that only those who listen, who don't quit. Are the ones who are ultimately rewarded. It doesn't matter how you start, it matters how one finishes. So, it's against this backdrop of church dropouts that we're gonna look at today's text, which is, listen, which is strong encouragement for the church to keep on running the race. In your Bibles, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And when you find Hebrews chapter 12, if you're able, would you please stand as I read today's text? Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. This might be more of a paraphrase, but you'll understand. Therefore, since we are surrounded by, encompassed by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily besets us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. As we're running this race, let us look to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith. Who, listen, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame and sits down at the right hand of the throne of God. Oh God, please be exalted as we work through this message. Lord, may we not be focused on anyone else. Lord, may you captivate our minds now and speak to us, oh God. We love you and we crave your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. And, amen. and you can stand up the whole sermon if you want to, or you can be seated. That's your choice. So the book of Hebrews is an appeal to a group of Christians, some of whom were, were toying with the idea of going back to Judaism. So Hebrews is about, listen, um, the, these first 11 chapters in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews is saying, um, you need to really know about this Jesus. You need to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is greater than anything that you've learned in Judaism. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is greater than the angels. Jesus is our great high priest. He's from a priestly line that is greater than the Levites. He's from the priestly line of Melchizedek. Jesus is God's final revelation. Jesus is is our great high priest who is continually interceding on our behalf. This is the gospel. And the author would say, you know what? Jesus is is like us in every way. Do you understand this? Jesus has been tempted in every way that you have ever been tempted. Every way that you've ever been tempted, yet without sin. This is who Jesus is. And so this is the gospel and those who turn by faith, who turn away from self and turn away from our sin and turn and receive Christ. That's the gospel. Are forgiven and given eternal life. We know that. Most of us here hear this all the time. That's what we hear in chapters 1 through 10 in particular. In chapter 11 is the great so-called hall of faith where all of the, all the, the saints of the Old Testament are, are put on the page before us and, they, and they're given as a demonstration. And these, I believe, are the cloud of witnesses that we read about in chapter 12. It's cloud of witnesses. So chapter 12 really begins a section that, that in, in chapter 12 and 13, follow me now, and if you were here for Ephesians, and Zach preached through this, you understand this is the way Paul writes. I'm not saying that Paul is the author of Hebrews, but he writes it this way. The first chunk of the, of the book is always about the gospel. It's about who God is and what God has done for you. And then it gets, gets to a point where he says, okay, because of this, because of this, What God has done for you, now live your life this way. Don't get it backwards. Don't say, I've got to live my life this way, and now somehow God is going to accept me. It doesn't work that way. That's not the gospel. But Hebrews here, the gospel, chapters 1 through 10, is all about Christ. Chapter 11 is showing the faith of these Old Testament saints. And then chapters 12 and 13 basically says this. Because of this, because of all of that, live your life this way. Here's the way I like to think of it. Who you are in Christ, we would just call that who we are positionally. Okay? Ephesians talks about we're seated in the heavenlies with God. That's that's where we are positionally. But y'all, we don't always feel like we're seated in the heavens, do we? We feel like we're living amongst the grunge. We feel like life is such a very difficult time. The gospel is all about here's who you are positionally. Now, live your life to, listen, to become practically. Who you already are in Christ. That's what it means to live a Christian life. So, that's the background to today's sermon. We're going to go quickly, sort of, right wing. Okay. We'll look at this text, these, these couple of verses, I'm going to look at it in three sections. The first we'll look at uh, talks about a foot race as a metaphor for our Christian lives. A marathon is a metaphor for the Christian life. Second, we'll look at this continual need to lighten the load as we're running. And then finally, we're going to look at how do we actually run this race. Okay, you're with me so far. Number one, a foot race as a metaphor of our Christian lives. And when we read through verses 1 and 2, we conclude the author is comparing our daily lives, our, our journey, so to speak, as a believer as living in the faith, he's comparing it to a foot race. Now, when this book was written, the author would have been familiar with the ancient Olympic Games, other games that happened throughout the Roman Empire. And there were three races, foot races, that were common in those games. Two of those were sprints. You'd probably have a, a 200-yard sprint, a 400-yard sprint, and then more of, of a longer distance race uh, maybe not a marathon at the time, but uh, certainly not a sprint. <clears throat> and so um, th- that's kind of the setting here. So now he says he talks about these this cloud of witnesses because we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. He's referring back now to these these. Um, Old Testament saints that we see all throughout chapter 11. The common idea or the, the, often the way that we look at this is we're running this race and all these witnesses are like up in the grandstands cheering us on. They're up there kind of going, come on, come on, you can do it, you can do it. Maybe, maybe. I'm not sure, though, that those who have gone before us are in heaven right now, you know, have this ability to look down and watch what we're doing. I mean, I I, I don't know. That's beyond me. But I don't think that's the import of this text. I think what is happening here is because we're surrounded by these witnesses, not so much that, um, that they're looking at us, but that we look at them. We're encouraged by their faith. Not that they were some super class of Christians you know, on a higher plane than we are. No. But we look at them as witnesses, listen, to God's faithfulness. At um, the previous church where, uh, where I, I served, we were about to enter into a, a possible building campaign, whatever that's called, campaign. Um, and this a group of folks got together and put together this survey, and the church was supposed to, you know, everybody give their input about what they thought this new facility was supposed to be like, what they wanted. And you can imagine all the input. Everybody has their own ideas, you know, had to have this super, super-duper super nursery, had to have super-duper sound system, had to have whatever, uh, you know, heated... Um, baptistry with a whole whirlpool in there, you know, all, all these kind of things. But uh, my son asked me, and he, he was gone at the time, he's already married and whatever, and he said, Dad, um, what did you put on the survey? What's important to you? And I told him, the most important thing I thought we should have in this church facility is a church cemetery. And he's like, what? And I was very much on the minority. In fact, I was told no one else mentioned church cemetery on any of their surveys. It's like, why is that important? i tell you why. If, if you've ever been part of a local church that has a cemetery nearby, and you arrive on Sunday morning, and you're gathering together to worship, And you pass through uh, a cemetery where grandma and granddaddy's buried. Or or, or that Sunday school teacher that that taught you years and years and years ago. And you see her headstone there. And you walk through that cemetery. Now I'm telling you, when you get into church, you're you're ready to worship. Why? Why? Is there something great about those people? No, not necessarily. They were faithful. Yes, they were faithful. But what is great is you know where they are right now. And they're not in that cemetery. You know where they are because of God's faithfulness. So that's the picture. The author is drawing upon what we would understand this this long race Is a race to be run, and there are ample examples of others who have run this race and have finished the race. So, church, be encouraged and run the race. That's the encouragement part of this message. We have encouragement, but next we also have some admonition. Not ammunition, but admonition. We want to look at this continual need to lighten the load. In other words, to lay aside the weight and the sin. Keeping with this race metaphor, the author says that there's something vital to do pre-race and actually the whole time you're running this race and that is to jettison anything that will encumber us or slow us down. Now, in the ancient games, the people actually ran these races you know, like with no clothes on. I'm glad that didn't... Keep to this day. <laughs> but any of us, any of you that have ever run much, realize how, how vital it is to be streamlined, right? I remember this is 41 years ago, a long time, 41 years ago, I was preparing for uh, aviation officer candidate school, learning how to, to run a little bit of long distance. And it was cold, uh, wintertime. And, uh, and i was out running and i'm I, and i hadn't run much in my life really i'm running i get to this uh, cross road and i have to stop and this guy runs up to me out of nowhere out of the blue and he just says you're wearing too much i'm like man what did i do to make you mad you're wearing too much and i look at this guy and he's got on shorts He's got on a long sleeve shirt, but it's really thin. He's got on these really thin gloves, and he's got his little thin cap on. light turns green, he takes off running. Now, I had on gym shorts underneath. I had sweatpants on. I had a T-shirt on. I had a sweatshirt on. I had a windbreaker on. I had thick gloves on, and I had a Miami Dolphins toboggan on. I like weighed it down. You know what? After running for a while, after learning a little bit about running, I understood then what he was saying. I didn't understand it right away. But y'all, if you're going to run, you need to shed the stuff that's going to hold us down. Verse 1 tells us if we're going to take seriously our lives as Christians, we need to, listen, lay aside every weight. I don't want to, you know, like necessarily confuse these two categories. Lay aside every weight and the sin. Lay aside every weight. Well, what is a weight? I don't know. Perhaps weights are those things that aren't necessarily sinful, but they are distracting in our lives. They hold us down. I'm sure that you're probably aware of some weights in your lives that would hold you down from effectively running the Christian race. A family that I knew of in a previous church the dad came to me all, all up in arms. He was all upset because he was failing as a father. Uh, his his children weren't, didn't, you know, couldn't care less about Christianity. His wife really didn't care, and and actually he just had a, he was struggling as a believer. He didn't know what to do, and he just came. At least he had enough, you know, insight or or desire to come and just admit, you know, how he was failing or whatever. And well, it turned out that they were very rarely in church. His children were involved in travel ball. So they were gone pretty much every Sunday. And I told them, I said, listen, uh, I am not your God, and travel ball in itself is not sin. But let me tell you what, when you put travel ball ahead of prioritizing being gathered together as the body of Christ, you are teaching your children what, what your priority is in your life. So it might not be sin, but it is a weight that's holding you down. Now don't leave here and say, gosh, the interim pastor says travel ball is sin. No, I'm not saying that. There are a lot of things that are not sinful per se, but they are weighing you down. They are weighing me down. The Holy Spirit, He's able to enumerate that in your life without me trying to list it. So I'm not going to do that. So He says, lay aside the weight. But then He does say this, and He uses the definite article. In other words, He uses the word the. He says, he says lay, away, lay aside every, every weight and the sin that so easily clings to you, that so easily bogs you down. I know in my life, I, you know, I, I wrestle with myriads of sins, but it just seems like there's that one that might keep rearing its ugly head. I mean, you stamp it out like the whack-a-mole's in the, in the carnival. You know those things, they pop their heads up, boom, 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 and they just keep coming up, kind of like fire ants or wild pigs around here. You just can't kill them. Uh, I think that's what he's saying. He says, kill that sin that so easily besets you, y'all. To tolerate the existence in sin in your life necessarily means that you are okay running against into the headwind of God. It's like strapping on five pound weights on your wrist and on your ankles and a 30 pound backsack and, and stand at the start line of a marathon and just think, this will be a breeze. Everything's okay. It won't be okay. It won't be just fine. Paul argues how serious, how serious it is to lay aside sin, to kill sin in our lives. Colossians 1 says, 3 says this. If then or since then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds, listen, set your minds on things that are above. Any of you have problems like with your thought life? We probably wouldn't admit it in a place like this, would we? That we struggle with a thought life. Y'all, that's not a surprise to God. God knows that. And we're not to say, well, I, I just can't get past it. I'm just always going to have this struggle with my thought life. Well, that's not what God says. He, he says, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's who we are positionally. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Listen. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. That's the gospel. He says, because of this, now, put to death, kill it, kill it. What is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now... You must put away, listen, put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie one to another, seeing that you have put off the old self. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here's what this means, since you are one, and I've already mentioned this, we are one with Christ, then become who you already are. Work in your life. Hate sin. Ask God, God, give me a hatred for sin because I don't hate it like I should. And I can't invent that in my heart. So, God, you create it in me. Just an illustration. I'm sure you've done this, you've talked to people whatever, and, and you talk about their grandmama or whatever. And, and I hear this a lot. Oh, that's grandmama. And not picking on grandmamas. It's just using the illustration. But there's grandmama. She just tells you how it is. She'll just tell you how it is, and she doesn't care how that makes you feel. She's just going to tell you how it is. That's just grandmama being grandmama. I'll tell you this. No, that's grandmama slandering. That's grandmama Showing malice to others. And grandmama needs to kill that sin in her life. It's not okay. If that's grandmama just being grandmama. I can see I probably should have used like a young person's illustration. <laughs> Do you ever wonder why you're not growing in your faith? Maybe it's because you're simply flirting with sin. And supposing... That you're honoring God while harboring anger. And there's a lot of angry people these days, you know that? But harboring anger or jealousy or lust or pride, that makes as much sense as supposing that your race times will gradually get faster and faster and faster or the time gets slower and slower and slower while at the same time feasting on a Steady diet of donuts, milkshakes, and M&M's. Or for those who don't run, I'll just put it this way. Thinking you're going to lose weight and eat M&M's and milkshakes and cake all the time, it just ain't going to happen. It's just not going to happen. So living your life and just flirting with sin and thinking that you're going to walk in a holy way, it's just not going to happen. So we're in a race where to take precautions from the start to get rid of anything that encumbers us. That's what we learned from this first part. But now, the race proper. Running the race. We've been encouraged. We've been admonished. How do we run the race? Well, let's just dissect this verse. We are to run. Run. The the word, it's it's a present tense. It means to run and to keep on running. What is it that we run? We run the race. The word "race" in Greek is interesting. It's spelled a g o n a. Does that remind you of anything? A g o n a. Was that spell? Y'all don't don't. I mean, don't tell me you can't spell. I mean. You, that joke, some people throw that joke at it. It's like, what does Y-E-S spell? Everybody goes, yes. What does E-Y-E-S spell? And everybody goes, uh, E-S, uh, E-S. Uh, no, it spells eyes. Um, yes, yes. A-G-O-N-A, race. Run, continually running. And the word race is where we get our word agony from. Y'all, you know a race, it's a mixture of emotions, Right? I mean there're times where you're just elated. It's great. But then there's also times where there's pain, there's sweat, there's hurt, there's disappointments, there's injuries. And those of you those of us who are nearing the end. I think we can look back and say the race has been a grand journey, hasn't it? Run the race Continue to run this race. How? With endurance. This is emphatic in the Greek text. With endurance, run the race. This is the main verb in the whole, the whole spiel here. Run the race with endurance. Yes, they're witnesses. We lay aside our sin. We run, but we run with endurance. We never give up. The word endure means to, to abide under. One of my friends at at the the dump, uh, Carnell. Do y'all, know, anybody here know Carnell Crawford? Uh, what a great man! But Carnell, um, he he tells a story. He he's eighty something years old, but he remembers as a teenager working at like this uh, log mill, sawmill or whatever. And he can remember these beasts of burden, these mules. They they would take this track and they would go down. They'd be cutting these logs and load those mules down with those logs. And the mules like. Hour after hour after hour would trudge from down in the muddy bottoms and pull those logs up all day long. And that's the, that's the word picture of running this Christian race. Y'all, living for Jesus is not a sprint. It's a marathon. But here's maybe the greatest encouragement that I could lay before. He says, let us run with endurance the race. What does it say Next. What does your Bible say next? The race that is set for us. That's a passive voice. You didn't choose your race. God did. God put you on this course. God gave you the race. He designed it so we don't have to ask God why or why not. He's put me on this course and I will endure He'll take me places that I may never want it to go, but that's okay. My grandson, Nolan, um, we, we got this little bike for him, and it looks like a BMW, and it's got pedals on it, and there's a there's a little lever in there, and if you pull that leather, lever, it disengages the chain. And so... In other words, he can can pedal, but it's not really doing anything, but he doesn't know the difference. He gets in there, and he's pedaling. All he can pedal, and I'm pushing him. You get get that? And I'm pushing him. I'm pushing him. He's steering, but he really ain't going where he wants to go. He's going where I want to take him. Now, he's pedaling, and he's steering, but he's going where... I want to take Him. Y'all, that's the way the Christian life really is. It's a marathon and we do it with endurance and we're pedaling and we're steering all we can. But you know what? God is the one who is pushing us. God is taking us where He wants to take us. And listen, when you look back over, the, over your life, if you were given the freedom, if you were given the challenge to go wherever you, you, you want to go, you would never go to many of the places that God has taken you. And you know that. You would say, I'm too afraid. I can't do it. There's no way I could live through that. There's no way I could survive. And that's probably true. But God takes you there. Why? To show your, your ability to endure it? No, to show His faithfulness. Y'all, this is an encouraging word. God is faithful. We pedal, We steer. We do all that we can. But it's God who has us in the grip of His hands. One of my friends in Virginia, he tells a story. His daughter was about three years old. and They were at the beach one day and they are going to cross over the road and uh, they would cross the other road, and his little daughter, is a busy, busy road, and his daughter reaches up and grabs her daddy's hand. And she's grabbing hold of her daddy's hand as hard as she can. But Chad's got to hold of Meredith's hand the whole time. Now, I'll ask you, who's holding whom? Who's really holding whom? She might think she's grabbing on, and she is grabbing on for all she's worth, but No. Chad had her safe and secure and made sure his daughter got on the other side of that road. And y'all, saints do the same thing. We persevere, we hold on, we endure, we do all that we can. But at the end of the day, we understand it's not even us who's doing it. God is holding you firm in Christ. And no one and nothing will ever rip us away. Well, finally. We run with endurance, the race that is set before us. But then how do we do it? We look to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. His person and His work, the facts of which our faith is based on. Not just the Jesus that we invent. And even the faith that we have, listen church, even the faith that you have to trust Him is a gift from God. Do you know that? we're saved by grace through faith and that not of ourselves is a gift of God, not by works as any man should boast. The faith that we have to trust in Christ is not something that we reach down and pull ourselves up by the bootstrap and say, I'm just going to have enough faith. I've got enough faith. No, you don't. You don't have it within you. You were dead in your sin and your trespasses until God came to you and breathed life into you and, listen, and gave you the faith to believe. I man, that should make... A Baptist church, stand up and start shouting. He's the author, the perfecter, the finisher. He is an example for us. He's more than an example, but he's certainly not less. He endured the cross, the worst suffering that anyone ever suffered, Jesus did. He despised the shame of being made sin, and now he sits at the right hand of God. Listen, uh, theologians will call this his session He's seated at the right hand of God the Father right now in His present position. He is interceding for us. I would love to know what that means. I don't. I don't completely get it. The Bible says that Jesus is always praying for you. I mean, it's something to get get a phone call from the preacher and somebody's, you know, sick or whatever and says, please, please pray for me or somebody's, you know, you're, you're, You're being tempted or or you've sinned or whatever, and please pray for me. Would you please pray for me? And yes, absolutely we do. But man, wow, think about it. Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for you at all times. I just kind of picture that as, man, me, me slipping, falling again, sinning. Like you're a believer and you still and you fell. How can you be? And and Satan just pointing his finger at me and accusing me before God. And Jesus just kind of whispering in God the Father's ear, it's okay, he's mine. Jesus. Paul would say, he says, I am sure of this one thing, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It seems, though, that most people who receive him don't remain. Most take the broad way and quit. Most are attracted by the world. Most choke on the world's offerings. Most quit the race and die in their recliners. How many times have you been, or you know, I know from experience, I've been in a witnessing uh, opportunity sharing the gospel with somebody, and I would say, you know what, uh, if, if you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And they're like, mm, I, I don't know, maybe, I hope so. That's the most answer you get, I hope so. If you were to die today and stand before God, and He would ask you, why should I let you into heaven, what you would say. And, you'd, you know, most people would say something like, well, I haven't been too bad, or, or whatever. And so then you begin to show them, no, the Bible says that we're all born sinners. We're separated from God. We're, we're like sheep. We go astray. We don't run towards God. We spit at God and run away from Him. And there's nothing in us that, would, that, that is lovely that we would want God. That's who we are. God is holy and he's, he's without sin. He won't allow any sin in His heaven. And we go the other way. But God, listen, God, because He so loved the people, calls the people to Himself, and he awakens those who are dead in their sin and trespasses and brings him back. And if you'll call on the name of the Lord, if you'll repent from your sins, you turn away from yourself, and you turn to Jesus and him alone, not by how good you can serve him, but by grace you just receive his forgiveness, you'll have eternal life. And you present that to a person and you'll say, do you want to give your life to Christ? And they'll go, oh, I've done that. I've done that. Their life has never changed. Never been part of a local church, never served him. There's no apparent real change in their life, continue doing just what they were doing before they so called came to Christ. Oh, I've done that. Remember my buddy Mark, who stopped two miles short. There he stood still, four hours into the race, just to quit. Just to quit. All of the training, all of the focus, all the money, all the time, he put into it. He was just two miles short. He could envision San Suchi Beach he could envision the Waikiki Aquarium and then the finish line right there at the Capiolani Park Bandstand he'd been there many times and he's two miles short and he stopped but Mark said that as he thought of all that awaited him at the finish line he just couldn't quit. And somehow some way he got a new endurance, a renewed focus, and he ran the last 2 miles. My buddy Mark West finished the Honolulu marathon. We're all running a race that's set before us. Let's be honest. Some of us are in the twilight years. It's hard to put one foot in front of another, much less run. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, scream at you to look at Jesus as your comfort and example so that you will finish that race strong. Eat listen, even if you're wearing diapers, even if you can't stir your own coffee, even if you can't remember your own children's names. Like runners that see the finish line, see heaven, see Jesus at the finish line. And listen, No, not only is He at the finish line welcoming you, this is good, not only is He there to welcome you, but He is here right now carrying you to that finish line. He's carrying you all the way. Others of us here, some of us here, are relatively new to this race. You're on a bike for two You ever been on one of those? A bicycle built for two? Some of you have. Bicycle built for two. The person in the back seat sits there and holds on. The one in the front takes you wherever he wants to go. Listen, if you will understand now, in your Christian race, you're in that back seat. Don't believe that stuff that says, God is my co pilot. God ain't your co pilot. God doesn't have to ask you where we're going to go. God's going to take you where He wants to take you. So you're back there on that back seat and you just hold on and you rejoice as God takes you on a race and be thankful wherever He takes you because He is working. Listen, He is working this race. He is taking you in this race for His glory and your good. Let's go to the Lord and pray. Our great Heavenly Father we who have we've been brought to life in Christ and we've been given races to run Lord we've not picked our races but we know the one who did Lord we admit at times this race the road is exciting but Lord sometimes it's sad Lord some race courses seem to having an inordinate amount of track that's built near death's valley and Sorrow slopes. Some courses take us to great heights on earth. Some leave us in obscurity our entire journey. But Lord, regardless of the race, we know Jesus is our source of faith and endurance. So God, thank you for reminding us this morning That the Christian life is difficult. But those that endure until the end will be rewarded. Jesus is our great encourager and example. Oh God, have your way in our hearts this day. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.